Welcome to Amicus Queerier, a podcast where we talk about legal issues affecting the queer community. My name is Jamie Francesca Rodriguez, and my pronouns are she, her. I'm an attorney in the Washington, D.C. office of the law firm Holland and Knight. You might say I serve as the putative general counsel for the Transformation Thursday podcast network. That being said, always remember, don't take legal advice from a podcast. And my name is Amy Stevens, and my pronouns are she, her as well. I'm a Rochester-based woman who happens to be transgender comedian and also a mental health counselor in training. Jamie, what is this going to be all about? Well, this is going to be a talk, as I said, about the legal issues that affect the queer community. And, you know, this really grew out of you know, a process where I was tracking um, all the legal cases that come out that, that mention transgender people in any way. And so over the course of about a year, you know, I kind of developed this body of um, jurisprudence that, you know, really does have some interesting developments. So I thought it would be great to come on and talk to the community about that. Um, you know, I was I was on here in late November, and we were talking about predictions for what the Biden administration was going to do. And being generally thrilled that we could say Biden administration. Um, it's, it's still thrilling, by the way. Yes, it is. Um, but now that uh, President Biden has um, been inaugurated, we are going to look back on some couple of our predictions, which I will say, I think we were relatively accurate. <laughs> Not that that was hard, what we, given what we were discussing. But um, I think there's some good points to look at, and so let's, uh, you know, let's get into that. Okay. Well, where do we want to jump up? You know, I, my first question is: you mentioned jurisprudence. That's a that's one of those legal terms. Can we um, spell that out for some of our listeners, please? What does that word mean? Yeah, jurisprudence is basically a a body of law. Um, you know, the legal cases surrounding a, a particular issue. So when I say queer law jurisprudence. I'm just talking about, you know, laws that address issues um, relevant to the queer community. Okay, that makes sense. And a whole lot of queer going on around here. So, you know, very topical for us, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, so we talked back in November, um, right after President, then President-elect Joe Biden was um, elected into office. And we, we did make some predictions. So um, day one, right out of the gate, um, Right after that swearing-in ceremony on the west west steps of the Capitol, um, he really got to work out with his pen, didn't he? Yes, he did. Um, but you know, I think that reflects you know his underlying commitment to to the LGBTQ community. Um, you know, gosh, almost nine years ago now, back in. 2012, you know, Biden referred to trans rights as the civil rights issue of our time. And it was kind of news when he did, because he he made the comment to a woman who had asked him a question after one of his um, speeches. And, you know, really, the Obama administration at the time had not 
said that outright, um, although they had been, you know, uh, friends of the LGBTQ community. But, um, you know, I think President Biden really does view trans rights as as just that, you know, it, it's um, there have been so many civil rights issues that have occurred over the um past decades and centuries. Um, and this one is kind of um, um, peaking right now. Um, and, and so, yeah, let's look at what he did on January 20th after his inauguration. You're right, he did kind of get, get down to work pretty quickly and issued a series of executive orders. Um, I'm not going to go through all of them, but I do want to touch on a couple of them, and I'll mention a couple of the others that aren't directly related to um, queer rights, but are, are important. The very first executive order that President Biden issued was a National Day of Unity, <clears throat> um, you know, which was kind of a, that's a feel-good kind of thing. So, you know, uh, calling, the, calling the country together, if you will. And then number two, the second executive order was a regulatory freeze pending review. And what that's important for is, you know, people have been concerned that um, in the in the last two months of the Trump presidency, he's been, you know, accelerating all kinds of actions, trying trying to lock in um, his policy choices um, and making it more difficult um, for, for President Biden and his administration to change things. Um, this kind of regulatory freeze is, is not uncommon, but um, you know it's important. So what this does is tells all of the federal departments that if you were preparing to issue a regulation or if you had a regulation um, pending with the federal register that hadn't been published yet, um, you know, or if there's ways to rescind regulations, to basically put a freeze on you know anything new and um, until we have a chance to review it and decide whether we actually want to go forward. Well, what does that mean for that late that late HHS H8 Health and Human Services really that was really targeted at the queer community? Does that do anything to that one immediately? Yeah, I, th I, I. Th short answer is yes. I mean, HHS will not be issuing new regulations that were, you know, trying to deny trans. Um, and any, you know, gay, lesbian um, people, um, you know, medical care and, and, and things like that. So they won't be issuing new regulations. And I, you know, given what we're going to talk about coming up, they are not very unlikely to be using, um, you know, any, any Trump administration guidance in how they enforce their regulations either. So I think it's a good, you know, it's good news that, that he's done that. That, that's a oh. beautiful thing that nobody's going to be using Trump guidance anymore in the federal government. Oh, that's. that's yeah, there may thing. be some pockets of um, of Trump, Trump acolytes hiding in, in certain administrative agencies um, who might think that they're going to be able to do that. Um, I, if they try, I'm pretty sure it'll get quashed, um, hopefully by those agencies themselves. But um, but if not if not that by the White House. So the, the first EO that I really want to focus on, and by EO, I just mean executive order. Um, the first one, the third executive order that President Biden signed is the first one that mentions transgender people and the LGBTQ community. And I think that is great. Like 
with his third stroke of the pen. And, you know, look, the first one was basically a day of unity, and the second one was this regulatory freeze. So his really his first substantive executive order um, mentions the trans community. And what the executive order was, it's um, an EO on advancing racial equality and support for underserved communities through the federal government. And I'm just gonna read a, a quick blurb. Um, he says in there, it is therefore the policy of my administration that the federal government should pursue a comprehensive approach to advancing equity for all, including people of color and others who have been historically underserved, marginalized and adversely affected by persistent poverty and inequality, affirmatively advancing equity, civil rights, racial justice, and equal opportunity is the responsibility of the whole of our government. And I think that's an important paragraph in that, you know, for a number of reasons. One, it's, you know, stating a, a guiding principle, um, but also the fact that he talks about both equity and equal opportunity really is a signal that, you know, there there's some that would claim that really all the government has to supply is equal opportunity. Um, you know, if everyone has an equal opportunity, then the results play out how how they will. That's the that's that argument. But what that ignores is kind of the history discrimination and the uh, inherent bias and the systemic racism and um, systemic problems that um, have been promulgated by the government for many years. And so. The word equity is understood to mean that, you know, not only are we providing equal opportunity, but we're gonna try and provide some redress for those historical issues. Well, those historical issues go really, really deep and very far back. I wrote about this in a paper last semester for one of my classes. If you look at redlining maps from the 1930s where banks would not borrow in, in neighborhoods of color, those neighborhoods today still have lower quality of life scores, um, lower life expectancies, they have pollution, they have, they just have a ton of issues. And so, you know, you mentioned the equity, but if the system is stacked against people of color and other marginalized groups, that's not equitable, no matter, no matter how you try to say it. And I think to see a President Biden come out and address this on day one is huge. Yeah, no, I agree. I totally agree with you. And and his, you know, I think these words, you know, they're probably drafted by attorneys working on his um, uh, his staff, or or you know, other people on his staff with with backgrounds in 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 um, racial justice and these issues. And so the the use of the both the word equity and equal opportunity, I think, was very deliberate. And yeah, that that is reflected a couple of paragraphs later that in. In, a, in this paragraph that I want to read. The term equity means the consistent and systematic, fair, just, and impartial treatment of all individuals, including individuals who belong to underserved communities that have been denied such treatment, such as Black, Latino, and Indigenous and Native American persons, Asian Americans, and Pacific Islanders, and other persons of color, members of religious minorities, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer, LGBTQ plus persons, 
persons with disabilities, persons who live in rural areas, and persons otherwise adversely affected by persistent poverty or inequality. So, you know, not only did he use the word equity, he then goes on to define it very broadly. And this is the first mention uh, in an official act by the Biden administration of the LGBTQ plus community, um, which he which he spelled out, you know, um, if you if you uh, you know, do a search on the word transgender. This is probably going to be the first uh, document uh, that you're going to find. Well, and also, you know, we look at this block of people that are marginalized that he identifies. And, you know, and the Washington Post reported on this back in December of 2020 that, you know, it's the LGBTQ community and other marginalized groups who showed up for Biden that put him into the presidency. And and I really like in this that President Biden and his administration also talks about people in rural areas who are underserved. Because if we look at the services that they get, you know, if you look at the broadband access in rural areas and other things going on in those communities, you know, they are disadvantaged and they need access and systematic approaches that they're just not getting right now and they haven't gotten in, in decades. Yeah, no, I, I think that's important, you know, and, you know, this executive order really directs all agencies um, to assess whether, you know, they're going to what they're going to do, like whether their plans, their programs, their policies, you know, protect, perpetuate systemic barriers um, or and how those can be how those can be remedied. So um, anyway, executive order number three on January 20th. Um, one of my favorites because it's the um, not only because it mentions the first mention of the LGBTQ plus community, but you know I, I think it sets the tone for what's to come. But that was um, a pretty busy day. He had nothing else going on that day, right? Yeah, no, no, no. he just had to he had to sign a few more papers. Oh, um, we you know, keep on so going then? you know, just uh, you know, he signed a lot of executive orders, and this is something we talked about back in November. You know. Pretty much the Trump administration had systematically been denying the LGBTQ community um, equal rights through actions across the board, you know, housing, labor, um, obviously in the military ban, which we'll talk more about later. But, you know, now the Biden administration is directing all agencies to let's go back and look at these things and, and actually fix them. So. Um, a few of the other things that he did, some of the other um, executive orders, you know, he ended the Muslim ban. He's, you know, requiring the wearing of masks, at least where the federal government has the authority to require that. Obviously, a huge COVID response um, executive order. And, and we've already seen some um, legislation proposed along those lines. They're going to look at redoing immigration and enforcement policies. Um, there's, you know, an executive order on the census and ensuring that the census accurately counts all persons um, uh, in, in states uh, as required by the Constitution. Um, then, uh, you know, executive order on climate change. So he's really um, across the gamut um, issuing executive orders to implement his policy while other actions such as drafting of legislation and in some cases changing regulations um, goes forward. And, and some of those, some of that will require time. Um, 
But then we get to the second executive order that, that I want to highlight, and it's the executive order number 11 on the 20th, um, which, you know, people can argue about uh, whether it should have been 11 or 7 or 6 or whatever. But, um, you know, frankly, these are all happening on day one. So you can definitely claim the, all of these actions are, are kind of the top priorities of the administration. But this executive order is called, um, is on preventing and combating discrimination on the basis of gender identity or sexual orientation. So there is an executive order that explicitly calls out discrimination um, based on gender identity um, and sexual orientation. And I'm gonna read from the beginning of this because I think this is a really, also a, a really wonderful statement of, of, of federal policy. It says, every person should be treated with respect and dignity and should be able to live without fear, no matter who they are or whom they love. Children should be able to learn without worrying about whether they will be denied access to the restroom, the locker room, or school sports. Adults should be able to earn a living and pursue a vocation knowing that they will not be fired, demoted, or mistreated because of whom they go home to or because how they dress does not conform to sex-based stereotypes. People should be able to access health care, secure a roof over their heads without being subjected to sex discrimination. All persons should receive equal treatment under the law, no matter their gender identity or sexual orientation. So, you know, I think that's a really beautiful statement. I think it it um, touches on a lot of the hot topic issues um, of the day, especially you know bathroom bills that you know still keep popping up in certain states, trying to deny transgender children you know access to bathrooms. Right off, you know the government policy is that that's wrong. You know it's just and 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 it's not just bathrooms; it's locker rooms and school sports as well. Well, school sports is specifically pernicious because it, it it just, especially for kids that are pre-puberty and trans, because if they never go through, you know, let's just say somebody who's assigned male at birth and they never go through a male puberty, developmentally speaking, you know, with the puberty blockers and eventually hormone replacement therapy, the, the kids developed as a female. And so... What this, what our foes have done is they just put these things out in the echo chamber. Boys can't compete with girls. You know, we need to save girls' sports. And this just is such, you know, and I just, it just passes that sniff test just enough for most people as they're scrolling through their social media feeds. And so that's how we start fighting that war and waging that one for equality, I think is going to be critical in the next year or two as we start looking at, you know, because I think that's where the big fight is going to be is with sports and puberty blockers, as we've seen with the case coming out of the United Kingdom um, late last year. Yeah, no, I think that you're right about that case. And, um, you know, the, I think there's a legitimate debate about you know, exactly what kind of lines should be drawn. You know, the International Olympic Committee, excuse me, studied it and, you know, came up this kind of one year on hormone therapy rule. Um, but I think they're looking at Olympic style athletes. They're not looking at, you know, like you said, the average, um, the average child who 
hasn't even gone through puberty yet. You know, that if they start on puberty blockers to then also say they need to start on hormone therapy before they could compete, I mean, basically deprives them of, you know, potentially a quarter of their high school athletic career, let's say, you know, who knows? Yeah. So, so there's things that have to be done. And I think this is an important point um, in addition, because there are some pending legal cases out there that the Trump administration had signed on to, I would say onto the wrong side of the, um, the case, but um, there, you know, Idaho's passed a, a, a law, um, or it's, there's a bill in Idaho, uh, HB 500, I think it is, which bans transgender women and girls from participating in um, in sports. It also affects certain intersex people as well. Um, so there's a, um, uh, it's been challenged. Uh, uh, there's a case called Hecox um, in the district uh, court um, in the district of Idaho. Um, so that's ongoing. Um, there's another case in Connecticut dealing with um, school sports in Connecticut in which um, three cisgender girls, you know, represented by a couple of organizations, um, anti-trans organizations, um, you know, we're, we're claiming that Title IX prohibits should be interpreted to prohibit transgender girls from participating in sports. That one, the Trump administration actually filed a statement of interest to support that argument. And the Department of Education had issued guidance um, basically threatening the Connecticut Interscholastic Athletic Conference um, with a, that, that it was violating Title IX um, by permitting trans girls to um, to participate in sports. And so I would expect pretty quickly that the Biden DOJ is going to be filing papers to um, to withdraw from that case and, and end its support of those kind of, of lawsuits. Yeah, that'd be good. And, I, you know, but, it, but the, there's this trickle down effect into our society because I had a family member one time say, well, you know, you shouldn't be competing in, you know, the local 5K races as a woman. I'm like, wait, what? I've been on hormones for years. Why not? They're like, well, you were born, you were assigned male at birth. And of course, that's not the way he put it. But, you know, but this trickle down thing in this, you know, it becomes even, per, you know, I've had some experience, but I'm like, in my age group, I came out, I mean, you run, for, you've ran with me, you know how slow I am. And, you know, <laughs> I finished eight out of 10 in my age group and, and, and my, you know, and as signed up as a woman, I mean, who, who's going to care about that? I know. That's why it's, I, I agree. I mean, totally agree with you. Uh, that I'm slow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I, that this is such a, um, it's such a distraction. Um, and, you know, I read an article somewhere. I don't. I don't have a site for this. But I could look it up. But um, that talked about the number of transgender women who actually have, um, you know, competed at at like the top levels of sports, and it's incredibly small. You know, there's like maybe one trans woman who has a single record somewhere. You know, out of 
out of thousands of athletes, you know, so, you know, if you look at it, you know, like I mentioned, the IOC has this guideline of you have to be on hormones for a year. And that, that, that guideline was actually developed through a pretty rigorous process that involved a lot of medical professionals and lawyers and sports, um, you know, kinesiologists, sports scientists. They took a they took a, a rigorous approach to developing that. And I think what you can say is that certainly transgender women, um, all trans people, but you know, transgender women tend to be the focus of this argument. Um, they are not dominating sports in any sense. Um, you know, and the fact that you can find one or two that are doing well doesn't mean that these that the guidance is not working. You know, well, and if and if and if the arguments are true that trans women are jeopardizing female sports in general, then then like you said, you know, you would expect us to have records in like all these different categories, and and they aren't there, right? And 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 so it's it's just extremely disingenuous. It's just a way to discriminate against us and make us the subject of things that we don't need to be subject of because i mean in the grand scheme of things even our lives our lives are pretty boring and you know and i i like what you're talking about too with the scientific research i mean i mean i remember i went to a, i have the same massage therapist that i did pre-transition as i do post-transition now and even she's like she's like amy she's like if i touched you now on your back and she's like, and blindfolded and didn't know who you were. I would never know from the, your muscle tissue and the way, you know, the way your skin feels when I massage you that you were never Amy, you know? So, you know, our bodies and our tissue and everything changes so dramatically on HRT, especially as trans women that, you know, our skin gets softer, our muscles change, the connections change. It's, it's truly transformational. Yeah, you know what? I'm. Uh, <laughs> I've noticed I've a lot lost, of flush I've there. Lost a few, some strength in a few areas, and <laughs> when I asked my son to open a jar for me, now it's like, wow, I didn't used to do that before. <laughs> I had to do that at work the other day. I'm like, can you open this? He um, just kind of looked at me. He's like, really? I'm like, yeah, yeah. You know, let me talk a little bit more about the executive order, though. You know, I think. Another thing that I like about it is that, um, you know, once again, it's, it, it, it covers a broad range of, of governmental action. Um, you know, it notes that, you know, these principles are reflected in the Constitution and the Equal Protection Clause. So it's grounding it in a constitutional argument. It does um, comment on the Bostick decision, which we talked about last time, which, you know, held that... <clears throat> Title VII of the Civil Rights Act prohibits discrimination um, be, uh, based on gender identity and sexual orientation. Um, you know that's in the, that's in the employment context, the uh, Title VII uh, and that Bostick case. Um, but this EO, you know, goes further. It talks about Title IX for education, the Fair Housing Act, uh, once again immig immigration. So it's it's really addressing the fact that that these interpretations have to be applied across the board, and then it goes even one step further, which I think is great that it explicitly does this. This executive order recognizes intersectional discrimination, and 
it does. Let me read this one segment, which I think is great. It says discrimination on the basis of gender identity or sexual orientation manifests differently for different individuals. And it often overlaps with other forms of prohibited discrimination, including discrimination on the basis of race or disability. And then it says, for example, transgender black Americans face unconscionably high levels of workplace discrimination, homelessness, and violence, including fatal violence. So, you know, you have, you have one, an executive order recognizing intersectional discrimination issues and then really spelling it out that, you know, trans women of color and especially black, black trans women are getting murdered. I mean, it's no less urgent that we need to prevent the killing of trans people. Yeah, and I know you, I think down in Richmond over the summer or in the fall, there was a, a black trans woman who was murdered. There was a brutal attack of a black trans man here in Rochester over the summer. I mean, the, the level of discrimination and violence our brothers and sisters and non-binary pals face, you know, especially coming from, you know, communities of color is it's dramatic and it's dangerous and it needs to be addressed and changed. And so it's so fresh, so refreshing to see something like this from um, President Biden saying, you know what, we need to address this. This needs to change. And it gives me hope. Yeah. And and I think another thing this, this EO does is it sets a timeline for action. So it's not just, oh, here's some principles that I want you to follow and, you know, we'll get back to it in four years when the next election cycle is coming around. It's... Uh, <clears throat> Now this, it actually sets a hundred day deadline. So every um, federal agency has to develop a plan within a hundred days um, that includes, you know, reviewing all of their orders and regulations and guidance that they publish. Um, so any kind of agency action has to be reviewed. Um, the agencies have to consider whether to revise or suspend or rescind agency actions. So you know, that could be revising or overturning some of the Trump administration actions. Um, and also to consider additional actions to, you know, fully implement the policy, you know, of non-discriminations. Um, so I think, I think it's good. It's going to be interesting to come back in, you know, a little over three months and see what these 100-day plans are, are revealing. Um, Should we put that in the calendar now? Just to, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Just... Let's put uh, what are the yeah. probably June, maybe May, June time frame. <laughs> yeah, but you know, and you, your next note here, you know, I want you know, but we're still lacking legislation. We 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 need the Equality Act. We need the ERA. You know, ratified. I mean, I know it's been ratified in what thirty eight states now, but yet you know. You know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg even said, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, yeah, we need to restart this process. And so, you know, we need we need stronger protections other than executive orders, because we've talked about this before, um, either privately or on the last time you were on the on Transformation Thursday. By the way, if you do want to go back to that episode, it's episode 65 that was, came out early in December of 2020, your legal preview of the Biden administration. But we need legal action. So how what's the chances with this 50-50 Senate and the and the way the House of Representatives is assembled now, what's the chances of us getting an Equality Act? Um, well, infinitely better than they were. 
um, uh, just two months ago, <laughs> because two months ago the the uh, the chances were zero. <laughs> so, yeah. um, you know, I'm 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 hopeful that the Senate, you know, that that Democrats wouldn't lose, say, Joe Manchin, who's known for being um, less liberal than, say, many other Senate Democrats, um, Joe Manchin out of West Virginia. Um, but I think the Equality Act does have a lot, a lot of support. Um, there's a there's a current bill. We can include a link to the text um, um, of, the, of the bill. But, you know, th there was, let me see if I can find. Is this where we put any elevator music in post-production? Yeah, exactly. I was trying to find where I, eh, oh, well, I can't find it. Well, you know what? And I think this is where we might need to turn to corporate partners and say, you know, there, there are companies across the United States, small and large, who support equality for everybody, you know, and they would love to have something like the Equality Act because it would, it would basic, not basically, if, they, if there was a federal law mandating equality, it would this level the playing field for all 50 states. So let me... Let me go on a little detour here for a minute and come back to the Equality Act because I think <clears throat> I think this little detour kind of will illustrate why the Equality Act is still very important and and we'll we'll get back to your point about um, about you know corporate support as well you know that's definitely a good point um, but if you hold on I have you, a good point yeah no of course right on the top of your head. <laughs> One out of ten ain't bad. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I remember back in November, I, I kind of talked about the good, the bad, the ugly, and the good was boss, the Bostick decision, and we talked about how great that was um, about for employment. And then the bad was kind of I talked about the Religious Freedom Restoration Act because, as Bostick said, RIFRA um, operates as kind of a super statute, and you know, there's some question it left open whether there could be a defense under RIFRA um, to some of the Title VII, to the Title VII holding. Like, could someone cite RIFRA as a means of still discriminating, even in spite of Bostick? That was the bad. And then the ugly, as I noted, was this case, Meriwether v. Trustees of Shawnee State, in which a professor was claiming an individual right to discriminate against transgender students, excuse me. Um, and the reason I think that's so ugly is because it's not only religious institutions are, you, you know, having this right to discriminate. This professor wants every individual employee anywhere in the United States to be able to, on their own, decide to discriminate, even if their institution or organization or company doesn't agree. So that was kind of the good, the bad, and the ugly back then. and. You know, I think now we can like maybe re rebalance our good, the bad, and the ugly. I think you know the good obviously is still Bostic, but obvious and also everything has happened with the election of President Biden, the and these executive orders that we've just been talking about. You know, those are the good news. Um, but there there is some bad still, and it still points back to this RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And on January 19th, the day before Biden was inaugurated, and the same day on which um, General Lloyd Austin 
was affirming his support for transgender in the military. And we're going to talk more about that. On that on January 19th, a court in um, North Dakota issued an opinion that held that uh, RIFRA entitles um, the Catholic plaintiffs, which there were a number of Catholic organizations, um, that RIFRA entitles them to a permanent injunction against the Department of Health and Human Services um, provisions that were requiring coverage of gender transition procedures. Um, so once, so once again, as as we kind of talked about, RIFRA is being used by religious organizations as a defense to allow them to continue discriminating against, um, you know, transgender people, um, and in some cases that's including, you know, in healthcare. So, you know, there are a lot. I think I looked this up. There are close to six hundred. Um, Catholic um, medical facilities in the country, you know, Catholic-run hospitals. If if transgender people are not going to be able to get healthcare when they need it, um, and 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 the first emergency room that they come to is is a Catholic-run hospital, people are going to die, and that's you know foreseeable that that's going to happen. So you know that this it's a it's a really bad decision. I hope it gets overturned, um, uh, but it's something that we should watch. And um, though the name of that case, it's Religious Sisters of Mercy uh, v. Azar 2. So I don't know any of the religious sisters, but that is not a merciful um, uh, uh, claim to assert. Um, I'm still going to categorize as the ugly as that old Meriwether v. Trustee, trustees of Shawnee State case, because once again, that would extend that general principle to let any individual who's a bigot, um, you know, refuse services. And that, that's just legal bedlam at that point when it comes to discrimination. I mean, that just says a company cannot enforce any type of standards. Right. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, um, if you were to drive up to... Uh, can you imagine if you know someone were to drive up to one Starbucks that they go to every morning, and uh, you know there's a transgender person working at Starbucks, or they are trans and they're getting their coffee, and basically everything goes fine, and then that same person, um, you know, goes on a business trip, and now they're in a different part of the country, and they drive up through a, a Starbucks drive-through, and the individual barista in the drive-through could say. Oh no, you're trans. I'm not serving you. You know, that's that is just ridiculous. I don't think anyone thinks that that should be the law, but that's what this professor is is basically arguing in in Merriweather. Well, um, when it, when it comes to healthcare, as you already mentioned, their real lives are on the line. And you know, could you imagine going into? I mean, and and the state of Texas tried this just a couple months ago with social workers. I mean, could you imagine going to a social worker for counseling or another mental health professional saying, "Oh, I'm sorry, you're trans. Go, no, you're not allowed to be here. I don't, I don't." I could literally send somebody home to die by suicide. Right. And and I and I wish that was hyperbole, but it's not. Yeah. So, so coming back to the Equality Act and and yeah, sorry, why I... the Equality Act is still so important, you know, you know, first thing the Equality Act does is that it revises all laws. It's applicable across the board um, to 
In federal statutes, basically, whenever the word sex appears, um, to, to replace that with a phrase sex, parentheses, including sexual orientation and gender identity, close paren, um, and it kind of systematically goes through a whole bunch of different areas of, of the law, um, you know, discrimination in public accommodations, which is basically any services offered to the public, you know, retail stores, rental establishments, service establishments. So anything that federal uh, law um, talks about, um, any federal laws applicable in public accommodations would be required to have this non-discrimination language. Um, any kind of segregation or anti-segregation, anti-discrimination provisions would have to, um, and that includes things like public facilities, education, housing, employment. So once again, the Equality Act is broadly drafted to cover those. Um, and the, you know, the findings in the Equality Act really kind of similar to the executive orders talk about regular and ongoing discrimination against LGBTQ people. Um, and, you know, so that, so that interpreting these laws, you have to look at the purpose of the statute and the statute makes clear that, you know, things like ongoing discrimination are not okay. And that's what we're trying to remedy. Um, it also talks about, quote, the discredited practice known as conversion therapy is a form of discrimination that harms LGBTQ people. So that's explicitly in the law. Um, you know, which is great. I think for anyone looking, uh, you know, many people have talked, you've talked about this, how harmful conversion therapy is. You know, this provides a basis in federal law for, um, for getting rid of those kind of practices. Um, and then, you know, what we talk, when we talked about Bostick, you know, we talked about the bad being that Bostick had hinted at this exception for RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, and it even called RIFRA a, quote, super statute. And the reason it's RIFRA has been called that is because once RIFRA also kind of applies across the board, it forces federal agencies to take into account um, First Amendment, you know, free exercise rights in, in enacting federal laws. That's, um, that's what RIFRA does. And so, there, you know, once people start talking about the Equality Act, there's a question, well, does the Equality Act actually um, take priority over RIFRA? You know, one argument that it does is that, well, it's later in time, so it would modify RIFRA because RIFRA came 20 years ago. But the drafters of the Equality Act were smarter than that. They didn't want to just say, well, let's hope that some court interprets this act to, to be take priority over this other one that came before it. No, they made it explicit. And so what they said in the text of the Equality Act is the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993, and then they cite the federal code, um, shall not provide a claim concerning or a defense to a claim under a covered title or provide a basis for challenging the application or enforcement of a covered title. So basically it's saying that um, any of the federal statutes that the um, Equality Act modifies, those modifications take priority over RIFRA and RIFRA doesn't provide some basis under federal law um, to, to deny um, benefits or to engage in religious-based discrimination. 
Um, and I think that's really important because, you know, as, as we've been talking about, Bostick leaves that question open. Now you have this court in North Dakota basically saying that RIFRA does allow the, these Catholic plaintiffs, Catholic organizations to continue discriminating. And so the Equality Act would make that clear that that's not okay. Um, and that would be codified in federal law. And, you know, back to your question about whether, you know, what are my predictions for for the passage of the Equality Act? Obviously, I'm hopeful. I mean, I'm super hopeful that, that it gets passed um, because then having it codified in law would prevent, God forbid, in four years or eight years or 12 years, the next Republican president um, coming in and issuing a series of executive orders that reverses you know, President Biden's EOs. That's the that's the weakness of executive orders is the next president can always do away with them um, and change and change government policy from kind of an enforcement standpoint. But if something is is in a federal statute, the president can't just change that. Um, so it is important. And the Human Rights Campaign actually did a, um, a study, I think, back in December. So after the election, but, you know, before the inauguration, and it found a 70% majority support the Equality Act, including 50% of Trump voters, which is actually, that was kind of surprising to me. That was about a 5% increase over a previous survey that they had done several months earlier, but, or no, no actually two, two years earlier. So, so I think support for the Equality Act is pretty broad, and I'm hopeful that we'll even get some Republican senators to vote for it. I, I'm really not surprised by that. 50% of Trump voters, you know, it's just observational. Since I've started coming out, like my conservative family members and who vote for who voted for Trump twice, you know, they're very supportive of me. And and they've if you have even admitted they've had to really re-examine their beliefs on LGBTQ issues and especially related to transgender issues because of you know, people like us coming out. So I, I, I'm really not surprised by that. But that but that vocal minority, that that 30 percent who don't support the Equality Act, they're very vocal. And those are the people that are running the Republican Party right now. That's true. You know, it is a vocal minority of people who are, you know, they're the ones pushing the, the Idaho ban, you know, ban yep. and the um, Connecticut just you know, Connecticut court case against trans women in sports. You know, unfortunately, it it only it only takes one asshole to file a crappy uh, legal claim. <laughs> that's that's my legal opinion. <laughs> well stated. Yeah, and as you know, as we noticed um, post election, it's easy to file a lot of crappy lawsuits and have them denied luckily um but sometimes it in general lawsuits take much longer um than election lawsuits which have kind of definite timelines um that that, that need to that need a decision yeah so <clears throat> but you know just to wrap this up a little bit i think it's important that you know not only the equality act that'll be a huge step kind of the anti-trans community will still fall back on the First Amendment. And so that's why I, I still continue to advocate for both the Equality Act and the Equal Rights Amendment, um, because I think we need stronger anti-discrimination language in our Constitution so that we can say, 
you know, even though the First Amendment says, you know, there's a free exercise clause um, and Congress can't um, prohibit the free exercise of religious practices, an Equal Rights Amendment would take precedence over that previous amendment and and kind of remove that last bastion of, of argument for those who are trying to impose religious-based discrimination on, on the trans community. And the ERA, I don't want to make a prediction on that. I don't want to jinx it. And, you know, it, it's certainly, it's harder to know how that's going to turn out. You know, you mentioned Justice Ginsburg, the late Justice Ginsburg, you know, had kind of opined unofficially that maybe it needed, we needed to start over. I'll just say we need to keep pushing for it. So um, I think we've covered enough about, uh, you know, kind of the executive orders and, and, and you know, the, the issues that flow from that. Did you have any other questions on that that you wanted to talk about? Or No, I think we got that pretty well covered. I think between our episode, you know, back in December that we did on Transformation Thursday and this, you know, very in-depth review right now, I, I think, I think, you know, we're in a good spot and I'm really happy with where we're headed with the Biden administration. You know, we look at, you know, President Biden's spoken about, you know, bending that arc of freedom and equality to all people. So I'm just thrilled that in his less than first week in office, he's 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 carrying through on it and he's appointed transgender people into his cabinet, into his transition team. So he's also putting people in visible positions that matter too so no i i agree with you totally and and you know we'll keep on top of these you know we should not um give democrats a pass if we go six nope. months down the road or or after the first hundred days you know if um if agencies are not um coming up with these plans and starting to enact them then we should call them to account you know um federal agencies often don't meet deadlines that are set for them um, I hope that the administration is really going to be pushing them to meet this 100-day requirement and and basically not letting them take longer. You know, yeah. they need to make this a priority. Um, so okay. the one other topic I think is worth mentioning now is the military ban because we do get, you know, questions about, well, you know, when's he going to overturn the military ban? When's Biden going to let transgender people um, into the service again? And I think the short answer is soon. I don't know exactly when, but you know, a couple of a couple of things give me hope. One is General Lloyd Austin, who was just recently confirmed as the new Secretary of Defense. In his um, in his Senate hearing to be confirmed, you know, he was asked about it by Senator Kristen uh, Kristen Gillibrand of New York. And uh, General Austin said, I support the plan to overturn the transmilitary ban. So he explicitly said that in his hearing, um, certainly did not prevent him from getting um, approved. The Senate had to um, essentially uh, grant an exemption so that he, he could uh, become Secretary of Defense because he had retired less than seven years ago. And current federal law requires that um, former military members have seven years before they could serve as Secretary of Defense. So anyway, he's cleared that hurdle. Um, but, you know, if you look at, and I talked about this back in November too, one of the reasons that this can be done quickly, and, 
You know, frankly, so I, there's an um, organization called the Palm Center. It's an independent research institute. They did a fairly deep dive on this and authored a paper. Um, the kind of the person that led their group was a Rear Admiral Alan Steinman, who um, he's a U.S. Coast Guard retired, basically the Surgeon General equivalent for the U.S. Coast Guard when he was active duty. Um, so familiar with the policies and the reason it can be done so quickly is one, it's really just a policy issue that the commander in chief can order, you know, so President Biden can order the Secretary of Defense to look into this and make changes. And they don't even really need to study this because when the initial policy allowing transgender people to serve in the military came out, you know, the Obama administration did two years of study. So there was a whole RAND report, you know, it um, there was an in-depth, a deep dive before they even enacted the ban, the, um, not the ban, the um, policy permitting service. The Trump ban, which came out basically in 2017 following a tweet, um, was implemented basically one month after the tweet. Um, after that, there was a year and a half plus of litigation that delayed the ban from going into effect. But the, the, the Trump administration, to the extent they looked at it, they looked at it for a month. So just the difference in the amount of time shows that it really was not studied. Trump was passing this ban as a way to discriminate in a way that, you know, fed meat to certain members of his base. And then I think Another great point about why this is easy to overturn is that the Trump ban actually did not get rid of transgender people in the military. It prevented new, you know, transgender people from from entering the service, but it grandfathered almost 1600 military service members. So there I don't know what the current number is, you know, today, but there's roughly 1600 trans people serving honorably in the military right now, um, they were already were serving or they were just on the cusp of getting in when the ban went into effect and they still are. And because of that, the military really has this dual track right now where they have one set of regulations that tells them how to let transgender people serve and so there's a whole structure of regulations that were developed during the Obama administration that are still good regulations applicable to those 1600 people. And then there's another set of regulations which are amended to enforce the Trump ban. And so really all you we need to do is cancel the ban portions. Um, and so, <clears throat> excuse me, the military, you know, implements instructions or regulations um, and there's a, a DOD instruction 1300.28, which is entitled Military Service by Transgender Persons and Persons with Gender Dysphoria. That's the title of the instruction. So DODI 1300.28, um, the first step in reversing the ban could just be to revert to the original 1300.28 issued in 2016, basically cancel the September 2020 version which finally got drafted following the Trump ban um, and go back to what existed before, which incorporates other guidance on implementing an inclusive policy. Um, you know, then there's a, 
a couple other instructions that talk about enlistment, enlisted um, service member separations and commissioned officer administrative separations. Those are basically the ways that they kick someone out if they um, come out as trans, you know, if they're already in the service and decide to start their transition after they've gotten in, those are basically the instructions that tell DOD how to out-process them. So those could be um, um, any of the revisions to those instructions incorporated as part of the ban could be just deleted. Um, there are some implementation handbooks that the military has those could go back to the um, original, um, the original handbooks implemented in the Obama administration, um, and then things like military medical standards. Um, once again, any revisions to enforce the ban could just be rescinded. So there really is not that much effort. You know, you could see over the over a weekend a a team of. of you know, military lawyers and, and, and personnel folks and, and, and commanders getting together and, and essentially following what the Palm Center has advised and revising these, um, all of these um, documents pretty quickly. And that would probably take the individual, many times, you know, if DOD as a whole issues an instruction, the, the different military services will have their own um, version of that. So there could be a, an army regulation and an air force instruction an AFI, um, you know, there could be a Navy, um, don't forget the space Navy force. Don't forget those. What's that? I was going to say, don't forget, the, don't forget, uh, don't forget the space force. Those guardians need some new, um, instructions too. <laughs> That's right. A new, a new space force instruction or whatever they're calling them. Um, um, captain's log. Uh, <laughs> Captain's log, start date 1300.28. Um, anyway, the individual services, you know, they're not going to, they can't implement um, instructions that um, contradict the DOD instruction, but they can add their own kind of take on it given their individual settings. So, you know, there is some paperwork to do, but this is not a heavy lift for DOD. And, you know, as has already been pointed out, um, it could happen quickly, and and I'm optimistic that it will. So, you know, I think the following thing, the last part of it, though, that, that I would like to see, much in the way that we talk about the Equality Act um, creating a legislative fix to discrimination that, you know, in the context of the executive orders, to have a long-term effect on the military, I think we should pass a law that prohibits the military from discharging service members or discriminating against them because of their gender identity. In some respects, the Equality Act would help with this um, uh, because of its kind of super statute status, if you will. Um, but I think it needs to be more explicit because often there's more deference given to the military about their personnel issues. Um, and in fact, such a bill does exist. Um, Back in February of 2019, Senator Gillibrand, um, along with Senator Collins and Jack Reed of, of uh, Rhode Island, they introduced legislation to end the, the trans military ban and basically prohibit that kind of discrimination. Um, and that same bill was signed on on the House side by um, 
several uh, Democrats and Republicans. Uh, let's see, it was uh, Jackie Speer, Joe Kennedy, and Susan Davis, uh, and also Anthony Brown on the Democrats' side. And on the Republican side in the House, uh, you have John Katko of, of New York, um, who, who's also signed on. So there is existing um, legislation pending um, that would create a legislative fix for this as well. But um, I don't know how long that legislation is going to take, uh, but I think the military can get it implemented before that legislation probably gets finished, given kind of everything on the plate of the Senate these days. So... Yeah, and it's, it comes back to legislative fix. I mean, that that's the thing. We need legislature a legislature that's going to actually do something, and hopefully we can bust through this gridlock and get some things done towards equality in the next 100 days or at least during the first couple of years of the Biden administration. Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, there, there's bills drafted. They just need to be passed. And, um, you know, I hope we can... Get that to the top, near the top of the uh, of the many things that have to be done, you know, in the, in the new administration. But yeah, you know, I I do think one thing I've thought about in the future. I know a couple people who were kind of d deeply involved in helping trans service members become some of those people who were grandfathered and are still serving. And I think that would be an interesting conversation that we could have in the future and kind of kind of do a little bit of a a little bit more deep dive on on really what was the impact on people when when the Trump ban started. Um, it's kind of an interesting piece of trans history, if you will, that hopefully will be a a long, painful memory in not too long. Yeah, exactly. This is probably a pretty good spot to wrap it up, don't you think? Yeah, I think we've been going for a while. You know, I just want to say thank you so much for. Um, I think this is great. I can't wait to uh, to do more of these where we can talk about because there really is a whole history of um, of issues affecting the LGBT community um, that are being addressed in law, and I think there's a good re kind of a good relation to civil rights in general. You know, and the, kind of these arcs through history of women's rights and suffrage, the suffrage movement, and then you know, the, the, the fight for racial equality um, and, and the long history uh, of that, which is still going on, by the way. And then you have kind of the arc of, of, of uh, gay rights. And I think trans rights are, are now kind of maybe at the beginning of where the gay rights movement was 15 years ago. Um, I'm hopeful that it won't take as long, but, um, you know, we, we need to keep pressing and keep these things on the top of people's minds. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, I, I really want to hear some more about those arcs. Those are fascinating to me because, you know, those those bring in different subjects, different topics, but then also you look at them over the span of time in history. So I think those would be beneficial for all of us to be able to see that these things really are intertwined. And, you know, they've been going on for, you know, going back to women's suffrage, back to the, you know, 1840s, 1850s, you know, those has its roots back here in upstate New York, you know, when we visited the Women's Hall of Fame, National Hall of Fame, you know, a month and a half ago or so. So it just, it's just this continuous arc and progress towards equality that, you know, I'm excited for finally again. Excellent. So we'll put that at the top of the list for next month. <laughs> There's a list. I've got a list. Do you? You've got a list. 
Oh, well, Jamie, so thank you so much for agreeing or, well, actually it's kind of been kind of a, both of our brainchild to come up with this. So I, I appreciate you and everything that you do legally for the transgender community and, you know, helping us out here on the podcast and um, looking forward to what's the name of this thing again? Amicus Queerii. Am Amicus Queerii? <laughs> amicus, Amicus. You say amicus, I say amicus. Tomato, tomato. <laughs> tomato, tomato. Hold on, don't go away yet. There's breaking news. Less than 18 hours after recording that episode, President Biden has issued a new executive order lifting the transgender service ban for military service members. Amy, I think we ought to talk about it quickly. We, sh we should definitely talk about it because that is big news because there's immediate implications for those transgender people who are already serving our nation and for those who want to join the military services. And also, I think this also leads to another issue that we've already discussed yesterday is that we really do need a legislative fix. Yeah, absolutely. So let me just start with a couple of um, comments from the executive order itself. I think, like, importantly, and this is kind of jumping to the end of the policy section, it says, it shall be the policy of the United States to ensure that all transgender individuals who wish to serve in the United States military and can meet the appropriate standards shall be able to do so openly and free from discrimination. So I think that's great. That's the ultimate policy. You know, the executive order um, goes into some specifics about telling the um, Secretary of Defense um, and then also the Secretary of um, Homeland Security, which uh, under which the Coast Guard falls, um, for them to study and to come up with a plan and to report back in 60 days. So... You know, certainly in the uh, at the end of the next 60 days, we should start seeing progress on um, all of the military services starting to allow new recruits to join the service. And in the meantime, they're going to halt any, um, you know, any any attempts to kick out a service member for, um, you know, openly identifying as, as um, transgender. Yeah, and one of the things you said in there that I really like is that there's a 60-day period where they need to come up with the plan to, that they need to come up with a plan. That this is so different from executive order by tweet. Yeah, exactly. Well, and you know, that's another thing I actually really like about this executive order is it lays out a whole section where it talks about the history. What we were just talking about, how the Obama administration did a detailed and thorough review this executive order talks about that very same issue, you know, thing that the the reason it can be done so quickly is because there's already been a thorough review. We already know that there's, you know, no um, negative impact to national security by letting transgender service people serve. And, you know, this executive order lays out that history and then it also kind of um, implicitly criticized the Trump administration for not following the detailed analysis that was done. And as you say, legislating by tweet. Um, so luckily we're not gonna have that. And you know, I, there's been a lot of news today. People are very happy with this executive order. Um, and as we already said, it shouldn't take long and it doesn't look like it's gonna take long. They're gonna move out fast on this. Yeah, and it's so refreshing to see this on so many levels because we really know that there is no 
detrimental effect to you know our national security by allowing people to authentically serve as themselves and you know one of the things as i was bouncing around facebook and some of the comments today on some of the news stories posted out there you know our critics are like comparing this comparing transgender to all these mental illnesses i saw somebody comparing it to a broken hip i'm like it's this and I replied back to the guy, and I know I shouldn't reply to the trolls, but I'm like, you're really practicing out of your scope of practice here. You really don't know what you're talking about. And But the guy said, he goes, no, I really don't. <laughs> so it's just when when trans people can be themselves and be accepted for who we are in society, that pressure, the mental health issues, I'm not going to say they go away for everybody, but for many of us, they, they just they decrease our anxiety decreases when we can just live as ourselves you know you know and i've i've said this before on transformation thursday you know i've been prior to me coming out and prior to me getting on hrt i was on and off anxiety drugs most of my adult life but now it's like now that i know who i am and i've accepted myself i'm only on hrt and that says a lot about you know i've come to terms with who i am so i think so much of that is this this society letting us be us. Well, you know, there was a study um, a few years ago on military personnel, and the the Pentagon said that only something like 20% of youth are eligible for military service for a host of reasons. Many of it is um, physical fitness related. Some of it is, you know, prior drug use related. There are, you know, there's a variety of reasons why people won't qualify for military service. And when when there's that few people trying to fill the ranks, excluding qualified transgender people who want to serve just doesn't make any sense. And, you know, the other thing I think about is we accept people into the military at a, at a relatively young age. You know, 18-year-olds can enlist, and actually um, I think 17-year-olds can do it with their parents' permission. Over the years, the exact you know line has shifted a little bit. There are a lot of people who don't come to grips with their gender identity prior to that age, and they may still be in denial. They may still be, you know, society still imposes a certain amount of shame, and so they may be hiding. They're still in the closet. It's natural that we will have young people join the military. And then only several years later, actually, you know, discover their true identity. And so after the military has spent thousands of dollars, maybe even millions in some cases on their training, it doesn't make any sense to kick them out. No, and, you know, we've. We know somebody, at least, you know, I've had, we've had them on Transformation Thursday, Penny and I did. And I think, I don't know if you've spoken with them, but I know your Facebook friends with her, but, but Lieutenant Colonel Brief Ram's the perfect example. I mean, oh, I mean, yes. What she, the knowledge she has in her head to have that special, to have her specialized skills walk out the door just because she's transgender would be an would be an immense loss to our national security. And so you're right. How many millions of dollars has been invested in transgender soldiers, sailors, guardians, you know, Air Force people, you know, you know, all these different things. And just to see that knowledge base walk away because, oh, 
you're transgender. It's it's silly. It's nonsense. Yeah, no matter no matter what job they have, the military has put a lot of money into their training. Um, when you get to some of the more specific kinds of training, like you know pilots and in, in any of the services, the just the expense of training a pilot is so much that it doesn't make sense not to retain them. But um, anyway, I think. You know, that's real quick, a summary of, of this latest executive order. I think it's important. And, you know, given what we were just talking about before we broke back with breaking news, I, I, I wanted us, you know, to make sure we, we got this in. Okay, ask a personal question here before we close, and you can say no. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you're a veteran. I am. You know, and while you were serving, did you have any inclination of your gender identity? Um, in in hindsight, yes. In you know, and I talked about this when I was on the Transformation Thursday podcast. You know, I dated a trans woman when I was in my late twenties. I was still in the service when I was doing that. And now looking back on it, I think if I had been more self-aware, I could have realized who I was back then. I personally wasn't ready. You know, I wasn't introspective enough at that point in my life to, to figure myself out, so. Yeah, that's a great answer. I think we should wrap this up. <laughs> that's a wrap. Well, should we say goodnight to everybody? Good night. What's the name of this? Trans query eye, amicus query eye, query eye. Good night from amicus query eye. <laughs>